All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Welcome to another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. We have a guest with us. In the early stages of the episode, too, which is unique and exciting, Justin Gentry, yeah, friend of the show. Yeah. Justin, friend welcome. Pod. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. I'm. Uh, it's nice to be a, a, a listener and now um, a contributor. So, yeah. What's cool is that Justin is not only a friend and a listener of the pod and a friend of the pod, but he is the host of two far more successful and cooler <laughs> podcasts than their after podcast. Yes. Uh, so it's... Uh, yes it's... to the hosting, not that, that they're better, but <laughs> all podcasts are beautiful in the podcaster's eye. I love that. I'm, yeah. I'm a huge Go Home Bible fan. I'm a patron. Uh, mm-hmm. I love that podcast. I love Recovery too, but Go Home Bible is like, it's got my heart. Yeah. It It... It was mas- I did it to like really balance two aspects of my personality, which one is like burn it all down and laugh at it. And the other one is like, oh, maybe there's some more to build here. And they kind of both do that. So go home Bible, you're drunk is very much, you know, drunk history applied to the Bible, which is just a delight to me. And Rev Covery is let me help you not be a pastor anymore. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just, they're very different, but I, I love them both for what they are. It's all good work. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, well, we have Justin here. We we have a guest here for our whole episode. So we have Justin here for Twitbits as well, because Justin, yes. you're around the Twitter sphere. Yeah, I am. I am. And I, I love Twitbits. I, I feel like I could twit the bit or bit the twit. Um, <laughs> so With the best of them. With the best of them. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, thanks for having me. So I feel like this just opens a conversation about vulvas. Is that is that what we're talking about first or what? I, you know, <laughs> sure. I'm happy to talk about vulvas. Oh, if you weren't around Twitter this weekend, um, somebody had a, a tweet about vulvas where there was sculptures of vulvas that... Um, had been had, they I, were I ceramic castings yes. yeah the of casting vulvas. of women's vulvas and yes. um she was identifying which one she was saying were quote-unquote real vulvas and which one she thought should be excluded because of various reasons and there was a lot of chatter about this on twitter this weekend so um should we just apparently open it up like a thoughts? vulva scientist or a, a lot of women outing themselves as not having real vulvas too like they're like hey wait a second that's that's mine and you said it's not real like it, so it was very if, i i didn't weigh in because as someone without a vulva i was just more watching the show and i like it just was odd to me 
that that someone would would say, yeah, these aren't real when clearly they're real. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely the the original tweet was definitely anti-trans. Yeah, it was definitely like, trans. Yeah, specifically yeah. calling out saying like this is a you know bottom surgery vulva and that that this woman didn't feel should be included in the 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 museum i guess there's a museum a vagina well, museum it was over half the vulvas in that picture were like not real because I, I, yeah. from what i saw it was like if there were i don't know 15 16 and like maybe four of them were circled as like real I'm like i okay i my i loved though there was like a lot of spoofs off of it and just and and i and i will say like yes like there were a lot of people that had discussions about it that were like i'm not even going to quote the original tweet because it is transphobic and it and it you know causes harm to spread that shit on the internet but then there were some things like i somebody put up a bunch of different kinds of pasta noodles <laughs> i saw like, that tweet is, yeah, that was a good one these are not <laughs> these are not real vulvas and then um i just different people have taken different pictures that just are of anything to say like not a vulva like and, and i you know that it, it just but it also kind of shows the the piece of it that's like why why does one person get to decide what's trademark tm real and what's not like what you know when it, it when it comes to this discussion so i think you know as much as it's like silly and satire i think there's a conversation there of like who gets to gatekeep women and their vulvas yeah yeah I, it's also weird because i mean i feel like we make allowances for all kinds of body parts to be different like you know penises most everybody knows like there's a lot of different kinds of penises. There's a lot of different kinds of boobs. There's a lot of different kinds of belly buttons, for goodness sake. Like, when we, we make space for that, but then suddenly, like, vulvas, it's like, no, there's, like, two, and the rest are fake. Like, I, I don't, I can't see that conversation happening around many other body parts um, to the degree at which it reached on Twitter this week. I, yeah, so it's, yeah. I don't know. It, like, yeah, I think, Megan, you're right. Who gets to gatekeep what's real? And who gets to tell women who are like who's a real woman based on something that you can't help? Like, yeah, that's Plus, odd. there's a lot. There's a lot of very. There's a lot of difference with like how bodies like like to your point, Justin. Like like there's there's so many different types of bodies, and also like very like different like surgical like ways in which we modify our body. One of the things that's most interesting in like the discourse around turfy opinions is that like most of these, even when we talk about hormone replacement therapy, when we talk about various different like surgeries that are getting targeted through transphobic rhetoric, like a lot of these surgeries, a lot of these uh, hormone therapies have been used widely by cis people and like with no critical analysis. Like I knew several men that were on T for low, low T yep. that were cis men that were on testosterone supplement therapies. And like, we don't like, I know, I know several cis women who have had breast augmentation or breast reconstruction or various different bodily surgeries that like maybe there was some stigma 
around, but like by and large, we didn't gatekeep and police. And so it's, it is, I guess. And, and then even when we talk about hormone therapy, I mean, uh, and again, I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little off of the topic of vulvas, but that's okay. <laughs> we're, we're okay with that. There's yeah. only Megan so much vulva talk you could have. There's only so much we could say. When Megan and I were hanging out last week and we were talking about, um, who was our guest? Uh, help me out. Uh, Daniel Lavery. Oh, um, yeah. In Daniel's book, he talks about like pre-transition, like pre-hormone therapy. Like he had uh, a hormone condition and was on estrogen uh, as a cis girl uh, originally and and that therapy, that hormone replacement therapy was commonplace. And then him talking in the book about going on testosterone and going on hormone replacement therapy and like going through his transition, it was so interesting to me that like the moment that something is queered, the moment that something becomes queer signaling to society, even if it is something that's very commonplace in straight or cis cultures, it becomes a, you know, like red flag, big deal, something we need to talk about. And really at the expense of a lot of other people who, who, who may undergo these treatments or these surgeries. And like, I guess my point being that like, when we begin to talk about people's bodies with a particular agenda against one very small group of people, we really harm the conversation. Like we harm people of all mm -hmm. different types. Uh, and, and so that's the thing that stands out to me is like when, when this woman is apparently trying to be very, just like blatantly transphobic at the end of the day, she had tons of cis women going like, Oh, you're invalidating me. Like your attempt was to be transphobic, but ultimately you're just an asshole to like a large portion of people, trans and cis included. Yeah. Um, because your standard of bodies doesn't line up uh, with the actual experience of a huge chunk of the population. Yeah. Anyway, that was my ramble. Well, um, and I just, boulders. I want to slip in there that um, the... <laughs> You guys are such Go a right in. <laughs> Slip it in. Um, <laughs> um anyway, the the original tweet, there was a whole thread going on about how the original work of art that that tweet was pulled from was all like it was very inclusion inclusionary, diverse. And yeah, that was the yeah. the point of the whole project. And there was, I think, audio and video that went along with it. And and I think that that got missed in that whole conversation because there was this beautiful work of art that was done that that was showing diversity and and being very inclusive and then was taken out of context and and had this, you know, thing happen with it. So I think that that should be noted too. Yeah. They're, they're losing the like point of the work of art, which was to show that like, there's all kinds, all kinds. And yeah, that's, yeah, I, th I think it's, it is interesting that like what gets targeted by these folks as, you know, worthy of, you know, being, 
you know, viewed as, you know, too trans for people to have. Like, I remember when the Texas bills were coming out and all the surgeries that were basically being banned, and this is happening in Tennessee and other places too. It's like, okay, so breast enlargements are fine. Like, you know, a 16-year-old can get those. But if a 16-year-old wants a breast reduction, even with parental consent, like, that's out because reasons. Like, so yeah. it's just interesting. Like, you can augment to make your child more sexual in one way, but you can't augment. Like, that's... And not that many 16-year-olds are having that done anyway, but it's just, like, the list of things that were okay versus the things that weren't okay were very much, like, that's weird. Like, you can buy your daughter a boob job, but you can't buy her a breast reduction because because trans i guess like that's and it's very it is very policey and gatekeepy and just how can we how can we manage sexuality um and i that doesn't work out well for anybody and you know to your point megan this work of art that's supposed to showcase diversity ends up being like well no there's only one way to be a woman in the world another message that becomes like that and that's that's Oh, that's bullshit. Yeah. What bullshit. else? There was there was a lot happening on Twitter this weekend. Yeah. There was a lot. Can we talk about the guy who was upset about tampons oh, for fuck. a second? Because <laughs> sure. I feel like it's a good segue. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm actually yeah. gonna pull up the tweet. But yeah, he he was upset because he felt that his daughter was being forced to use tampons at school and he thought this had somehow had had something to do with her virginity. I, it it yeah. was giving away. It was like, why are we giving away? And it like conjured up for me like like the rhetoric that I heard a lot growing up about like schools giving away condoms. You know, people are like, oh, the school shouldn't be providing these things for students because it could like, uh, you know, for whatever reason, access to things like tampons or condoms or whatever is is somehow uh, just like like maniacal. Uh, mm-hmm. When in reality, it's just like promoting health. Yeah. Well, like, he, and, and here's like what wellness. he says. Yes, but teachers are giving them tampons instead of pads and making that decision for them. Which show me where we're going to have that. We're going to have a whole generation of women that are worn out before they even give birth. Save something for marriage. Just one thing. So speaking of people tried to um, speak for women in their body parts, um, I, apparently tampons wear out your vagina and then you can't give birth after you've used too many. I, like, <laughs> Okay. Like, um... I'm going to make a Go statement. ahead, Justin. Weigh in. <laughs> that may be indelicate towards this gentleman. Um, but if he holds a tampon and thinks this is just like a penis, um, <laughs> I feel like that says more about him than anything else. And I'll just leave it at that. Like, I just like that. Like, I, Whoa. like it just, I, I don't know. Like, it's just one of those things like, that's not like, this is a medical thing that is designed to help women. And why are you weighing in, my dude? Like, and why are you talking about, like, that's not going to wear, I'm sorry, that, that first off, it doesn't wear out. Like, vulvas and vaginas are incredibly resilient. They expand to make babies, and then they contract right back to where they were. Like, this isn't, like, anyway, like, my dude, it, you're just showcasing your ignorance, or you're showcasing that you, you don't know about penises either. Like, wow, like, that's, that's, yeah, okay. Yes. I'm going to stop now. 
Yeah, it was wild. I saw that. I saw that tweet, and it really kind of like coincides with a lot of the rhetoric that's coming from this. We were talking about a little bit before when we hit record about like I don't know, just like the fragility. What did you say, Justin? You're like the like masculinity is like going through a yeah, particularly m- fragile stage. It's just it's having this I don't know crisis conniption. I don't know what to call it. It's just like a freak out like the everything makes you gay now and i don't like i don't like if you like the the dude the alpha male guy is like you know like beta males go and have wine on top us with their wives alpha males go and have drinks with the boys i'm like so hooters. it's gay yeah go to hooters, hooters with, with the, the boys. boys yeah i remember that like so it's gay to like go on a date with your wife like what what is what is this like why why is ev- like everything is gay and it's like they heard toxic masculinity and they're like let's just double down on the toxic part like let's just that's what we're going to choose to focus on and not all the myriad ways that masculinity can express itself in like healthy and generative ways so i don't i don't it's just having a moment and this is like this freak out like that dude that was like men don't moan or make sounds during sex just like you don't moan or make sounds when you're driving like i don't even know what the connection was there was squeaking and squirting involved in that tweet it's been deleted <laughs> since then so i can't find it but it's just like what like like so it's gay to, to like enjoy sex i guess so i don't i don't know it's masculinity's having a moment and as a cis guy who's tragically straight I I just don't even know how to speak to it at times. Like I'm watching these guys flail around, like trying to pump their chests on the internet to be real men, and I'm like, Is it having this, a this moment, it. or is it having like a decade? I, I don't well, know. Well, I mean, I mean, it's had like several millennia, but it's just more like a like it, it's there's it's like a manufactured crisis, similar to like the Christian persecution yes, complex. Yeah. I feel like we're going through a masculinity persecution complex too. And I, I don't know. It's just it's and I weird. Get, I get how ironic this might be for me to say as a cis man literally recording a podcast. But I feel like podcasting equipment and the, like, the, the availability of being able to have a podcast has been like one of the most like, like ridiculous changes in the way that men are able to like spew this type of nonsense. Um, your pal Austin, which is like one of my favorite creators on TikTok, did a sketch <laughs> about this last week. And he did this sketch and it was him. Like I I have said for a while, and there's been a lot of creators and a lot of people who have said like the gayest thing ever is like a group of straight men. Like <clears throat> there there is something about and like anyone who's been to like summer camp or like especially like Christian summer camp like knows that there is like nothing more homoerotic than a bunch of straight men getting together mm-hmm. and trying like, to not be gay. <laughs> <laughs> well, like yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Like once like straight men gather together, they do a lot of really gay stuff as soon as mm-hmm. they like feel comfortable. Uh, and they're like, it's, we're all straight here, man. We're all straight here, man. Like, it's fine. It's no big deal. Show me your dick. Yeah. It's cool. Like, you know, let me touch it. We'll see what happens. Like we're all straight here, man. No homo. Yeah. Uh, there's weird stuff that happens, but I, I, 
your pal Austin did this sketch, and after the sketch, he was like sketching like he was a podcast, like bro podcaster. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "It's you must be thinking. You watch that sketch, and you must be thinking like this is wild, Austin. How do you come up with this crazy stuff? Uh, like no one would ever say anything like that." And it was like basically saying like, "Oh, it's super gay to go down on a woman. It's like super gay to like." eat pussy like mm-hmm. it's super you know it's super sorry i'm just gonna say like the way that these guys say yeah. it right like they 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 say th- there's nothing gayer than that and it's like what and Why? like then he played these clips maybe i am gay then actual yeah these actual podcasters saying this sort of thing like like oh no this is yeah. literally people are saying that this one podcast clip that he showed was these four men talking and they were like, like, like basically saying like women shouldn't climax. And then basically saying that like, if women climax, they're becoming men and they're being masculine by climaxing. And you shouldn't like make women climax because that makes them more masculine. Then one guy proposes that climax may be fake and it's not real at all. Women are incapable of climax and any woman who says that she's climaxed is actually faking it. I, I Megan, feel do you like, have something to say? Well, I have a lot, but <laughs> I, I feel like the short version is that a lot of this incel toxic masculinity bro stuff, it's very clear to me that they're not talking to women. That's all. I mean, it's like, like they're sitting around and they're coming up with this logic. And I've seen other things that say, like, if you enjoy being with a woman, you're gay because the gayest thing you can do is um, in order to show that you're not gay, try to show that you're not gay by marrying a woman or like they're they're like there's they come up with these logical illogical logical explanations for whatever it is that they're doing and i just feel like they're just really sitting around with with a bunch of dudes talking in circles and thinking like building each other up and thinking that they're all right about things that they're just mm-hmm. really really far off about speaking of far off i just have one more thing i have to say cuz the yes, tampon go. dude this was his suggestion he says they need to discuss with parents. Parents will usually want them to use pads or tissue paper until they are married and no longer virgins. And so it's very clear that somebody just doesn't understand how women work, right? Like these are just men mm-hmm. that don't understand how women work. But yeah, feel the reason, like feel a need to weigh in on like, this is how women are. Like that's, and the weird thing is about the whole these uh, these podcasts coming out with all these weird dudes. Like I, I probably had ridiculous conversations like that in like friends' basements, but thank God there were no microphones. <laughs> you like, were like thirteen and didn't yeah, know like yeah, like what I was like even was yeah, like, like yeah, oh man, a podcast. <laughs> yeah, like like no one was recording. There was just it was just dudes in a basement being just asses, and then it and then you grow out of that. But like now. Like you're dudes in a basement and your asses and then you put it on a podcast and you become famous and like, well, I guess I'm just now my personality is now an ass like because that's what makes me money now. And so that's I don't know. It's just created this weird like masculine subculture of like dudes just saying weird bullshit about women's bodies that clearly have never seen one. Yeah. And it's it it ties right into this idea that like 
to relate to women. Um, and I think Austin said this on his sketch, like, like, is like, like to be the gayest thing you can be is like friends with a woman, right? Like being friends with women is gay. Like that's hanging out with women, wanting to do things that women want to do is, is, is gay. And, and is something that you shouldn't want to do as a hyper alpha, you know, masculine man. And it plays right into this like idea that like having healthy relationships with women is not something that you should do or want to do. So it's almost like, it almost feels like if you step back from it, you like see why perpetuating this type of rhetoric would like create a market that is so isolated from reality that you could continue. It's, it's almost like cult-like practice. It's like if we keep you away from the segment of population, if we tell you that you shouldn't be friends, you shouldn't trust women, you shouldn't like women, you shouldn't want to do things with women, and then we are then going to be the dispersers of knowledge about like what women want and what women feel and what women think. And if we've already told you, I'm going to make a really weird crass comparison but it's almost like the way that I feel like... Go for it. Yeah, <laughs> we've reached this point. Um, it's almost the way the church talked about the world, right? And I'm air quoting, right? Like, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, this is what they think, and this is what they believe. And let me tell you about the world. Let me tell you about the heathens, the unchristians, the lost, right? And I was told so much about the lost as a Christian and told that like you know they can't be trusted and they they they're they're lost right and and my only knowledge and experience of the unchristian the non-christian community was coming from christians right and the minute that i stepped out of that and began having conversation with non-christians i was like oh you're not like the way that i was told you were at all like i actually like have a ton in common with you I almost feel the same tactics are happening with these alpha male hypermask creators that are like, you can't trust women. Let me tell you what women think. Let me tell you what, and it's like isolating men mm -hmm. and keeping men from having healthy relationship or having any type of sense of, of, of a trusting real relationship with anyone who's a woman. And, and, and allowing for them to then be super susceptible to this type of misinformation, it it feels intentional. Like it feels like there's a strategic approach. Just just wait until those two worlds merge together when somebody like Mark Driscoll gets into it, it gets into a partnership with somebody like Jordan Peterson. Cause I feel like that there it's like edging closer to closer and closer to that kind of thing happening. Yeah, the the masculinity singularity where they just, yeah, ugh, that's awful. <laughs> Let's not speak oh, that is, into existence. It is Don't awful. put that out in the universe. <laughs> like a um, friend Mason did. Yeah, that, yeah. Shout out to Mason for for drawing that that yeah. comparison. But um, I kind of want to get into. There was something else that was part of Twitbits that we talked about that I that I think we'll cover, which was part of why we wanted to pull Justin on this episode. Um, but that's the whole conversation about forced tithing among 
church staff and volunteers. But I, before we get into that, I would love for you, Justin, to give us a little bit of context of with um, like, you know, who you are and, and what you're coming, what you came out of. And then um, just because with your work with recovery and everything else, I thought you'd yeah. be a great person to have this conversation with us. Yeah. So I was a, I was an evangelical minister for close to 15 years in a lot of different churches, um, church plants and, you know, established churches and, you know, at least one mega church. And so Two mega churches. Uh, so yeah, I've been around a lot of teaching around tithing. I've had a lot of you know odd experiences with tithing. Um, the church plan I was a part of uh, offered a money back guarantee if you what? decided to tithe. Um, Wait, hold on. Can you unpack that? <laughs> yeah, um, the pastor um, basically offered a like money back guarantee if you if you agree to tithe for six months and God doesn't bless you financially, we'll give you back the money um that you tithed and did anyone uh, take him up on this uh well he kept that part secret i don't know if anyone took him up on it and i'm quite certain he never gave them their money back i yeah that's there's there's another story i'm not going to share publicly that i'm quite certain that he did not give them any money back um so yeah and you know and i was i was never forced to tithe as a staff member um, but I was, it was strongly implied that I should many times. Um, it was definitely would be brought up in staff meetings. Like, you know, we, how do we expect the church people to tithe if the pastors don't tithe? Uh, and honestly for pastors in particular, and this is something I get kind of passionate about. And for those that don't, maybe don't know, Revcovery is a podcast that I do with, um, Reverend Sarah Heath. And it's really to help people transition out of ministry. Like, how do you do that? I, I had a very hard transition out of ministry. Um, it was just, you know, one day I was in ministry and the next day it was like, well, see ya. And so trying to transition into the corporate world was incredibly difficult for me. It was, it was for a lot of reasons. And we just try to help people through that transition or even decide if that's a tradition they want to make. There's so much weird messaging around money when it comes to being a pastor, um, particularly because a lot of churches are invested in keeping you poor. And so, you know, you're, you're investing in heaven, you know, <laughs> you're sacrificing for the Lord. The Lord will reward you. The Lord is my retirement plan. Um, and that's, I don't hate to burst anyone's bubble, but that's terrible money advice. Um, and also the fact that, that the pastor is expected to tithe, which is this weird circular thing where like the church cuts you a paycheck and then you give 10% of that back to the church who then uses that donation to cut you a paycheck um it, it doesn't make any sense and even if you we've we've appropriated so much from you know ancient jewish culture and appropriated it badly by the way um i could get into like there were three tithes actually in the ancient near east and uh, poor people didn't pay any of them and um craftsmen didn't pay any of them uh, it was really only landowners and farmers that paid them but anyway whatever and it was only ever food uh, so sorry. I'm just gonna. Like, that was great. It was. It wasn't. It Get was not. Get into it, Justin. We're here. You know, it. like it's just if you're gonna appropriate this language, like do it right. Like first off, the pastor shouldn't tithe because in this weird scenario you've created, the pastor would be the Levite who receives the tithe. Like, and poor people receive the tithe, but unfortunately, it's usually poor people that are giving more to churches than wealthy people. Um, they were supposed to receive the tithes, not get them or not give them. Um, so it's, 
it's just this weird, like, oh, giving is in the Bible, and 10% is a great number, and God commanded it at one point. We're not going to look at the context, we're not going to do anything, but we're just going to, like, tell people 10% is the bar. Like, that's, that's what a faithful Christian does, is gives 10% of their income to the local church. Um, and that was always just preached at us, and it was, it was hard for me to do. Like, pastors typically make, like, sometimes 20 and 30% less than what someone of their same age and education makes. Um, and you know, we joke on Rev Covery, like being a pastor, it's like one, it's, it's two extremes. There's no like well-paid pastors, there's underpaid pastors and there's way overpaid pastors. And there's really not a lot in between there. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird to expect pastors to tithe, let alone make it a requirement. Or I think uh, someone on that thread of yours, Megan said like, yeah, it was just like part of our, our contract was it was baked in automatically that the church would take a 10% cut to your paycheck and give it back to itself. Um, I don't, that's, that's just wild. And a couple (laughs) of things came up on that because it was, it was in some places required for church membership and, and in mm -hmm. some places people were just asked to be very volunteers were asked to be very transparent about their income. And then they had to, Mm -hmm disclose you know everything so and then link their bank account directly to the church um and so there's there was a lot to unpack there um yeah there's a church i grew up near that like they would ask members for w-2s and bank account numbers and they would take 10 percent. i'm curious to be a member part were you what was your experience when you were in ministry as far as forced tithing or encouraged tithing or pressured tithing (laughs) Um, yeah, so my, the church I was part of got around that by just not paying us oh. <laughs> was an easy solution to that. So like, I never made a paycheck, um, when I worked, um, in ministry and there was probably like six or seven years I was like working for the 501c3 only um and then after that it was like kind of a conglomeration of a few things before i got out i I usually say 10 years but really six or seven years really in it and at that point in time we we had no money that was ever given to us so the 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 church that i was involved in um was unique i think in some sense um or not the standard for a lot of other churches um, where we we literally weren't paid. Um, so we had meals provided Jeez. for us. We had cars that we could use if we were doing church business. Um, we stayed with people that were like, we were housed in basements or garages or like various places. Um, and so the bulk of my time in ministry, I had no financial autonomy. Um, I was on Medicaid, um, because when I filed my taxes, I filed at literally like, you know, $200 that I had gotten an income in a year or $300 or whatever it might be. Um, and that was all income that I had received from like maybe a family member or, you know, whatever else. Um, and so we were on food stamps, we were on Medicaid, we were on WIC and various other programs mm-hmm. that offset some of our living expenses, Um, and so, but it was definitely expected in my context that if we received 
funds. Like I remember I got like two grand when my, my grandfather passed and like, it was expected that all $2,000 of that was the churches. Like it was, it was this, this, any money that we got as a part of the organization went to the organization. Um, so that was, that was my context. I, I did some Googling because this all kind of came up. Your tweet, Megan, originally was kind of triggered by the report about the lawsuit that was filed against Church Home. Yes. And let's talk about Judah Smith and Church Home. And this is a suit that's going on. It's a clash action lawsuit from a former employee of Church Home uh, that is suing uh, them for being in violation of these Washington state laws that are labor laws that this agreement, this employee contract that they had where tithing was mandated uh, as a term for their employment, uh, they're, you know, I guess like trying to uh, confront that or fight that, right? Because they were, this person was fired for not tithing. Uh, I looked it up and like there's actually... One, this happens a ton. There was like yeah. a 98 comment thread on Reddit that I saw where people were talking about this. There was a Quora question, which had like 90 or 100 and some uh, replies to it. So there's a lot of people asking the question, like, is this legal? Is this uh, uh, something that is commonplace? And apparently it really is commonplace for employment uh, and for me, like I remember seeing in other churches we worked with volunteer capacity. If you wanted to be a volunteer leader at a church, you had to prove that you were tithing 10%. Yeah. Um, it's very prevalent in the LDS church and in the Mormon church, uh, <clears throat> which is the same thing. Um, the Mormon church, uh, I believe is the same thing, Justin, hopefully you can correct me if I'm wrong. You, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> yeah. You're good. Uh, it's it's very common to have membership, to have good standing membership with the Mormon church. You have to be tithing 10%. And mm-hmm. there was actually a case, a Supreme Court case in like 87 um, about this that I think ruled in favor of the church. Um, it was the presiding bishop versus Amos, 483 U.S., 387, 1987, um, United States Supreme Court approved the firing of a church employee who failed to maintain their temple recommendation for the local congregation to to remain in good standing. And, and so I guess there is some precedence, some legal precedence to you can fire church employees, at least per that legal precedence for not being good standing members of the organization if tithing is a part of your membership requirement. I okay, I have a couple things about this. I have, I have a lot. Yeah. I, let's let's talk. Are we ready? Yes, let's talk. Let's do it. Um so it was so interesting because when I wrote I I just wrote out a thread like, "Hey, I just realized this is a practice. This is actually a thing like forced tithing." And and the responses were so interesting. But I think one of the things that was fascinating to me were the people that came in to defend tithing. And they were like, Hey, like my church doesn't force us to tithe, but they talk about tithing and, and financial blessing and, and, you know, just being generous and, and other people that just really thought that it was a great thing. And I think, you know, to your point, Justin, 
there's a lot that happens for church staff that does not set them up for financial stability in the future. And, and I think that's a huge thing to be addressed. But I think the other piece that came up in that thread too, well, two more things. One, not everybody's, you know, what, within the same household was on the same page about how much to tithe. And I think when it comes to different income levels and when it comes to people that are in partnerships, not everybody is on the same page. And so people said that in the thread, like, Hey, my spouse decided to tithe this amount. I wasn't on board with it. And, um, I'm not with that spouse anymore, actually, you know, like, but Mm -hmm. also, um, then there was the whole piece about tithing time and energy. And, I, and I'm and i curious about that piece too, because I think the common denominator here is exploitation. And I think that's a conversation that we need to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, like the, the ways that churches will, yeah, use very nice sounding language. Uh, and, but creating so much guilt around people giving more and more of their time, energy, finances, and and also expectations of staff. Like I was a staff member at a church where it was expected that we volunteer at the church X number of hours over and above our 40, 50, you know, let's be honest, sometimes 60 hour work week, you know, because it was like, well, we expect our volunteers to do that. Uh, you know, because they have 40 hour week jobs and then we expect them to volunteer here. So you have a 40 hour week job. You should also be volunteering here as well. Like in which that. To just glance at that, that's like, oh, OK, I guess that makes sense. But like it, it's like when you take a step back, like, no, like this, this is where I work. Like yeah. my job is this. Like I don't volunteer here on top of that. Like, um. And I, I empower the volunteers that are here. I try to train, you know, train and equip them, make it, make it a good place to volunteer. But I don't like, I don't, what other organization is like, oh, we're going to expect you to do four or five hours of unpaid time on top to really prove that you're faithful to the organization. Like that, that is exploitation by definition to me. And probably illegal, let's be honest, um, if it came down to it. And, and that's just, that's, that kind of attitude is very prevalent in churches where, you know, the staff is here to be used all the time. And, and that's, you know, I don't always see that as a bad thing in the sense that, you know, you, you get to have a role in people's lives that um, you can be there for these, you know, very wonderful moments. But there's also a lot of times when, like, you don't get any moments for yourself either. Um, Sarah tells a story, and she tells it publicly. This is on our Recovery podcast, but it's it's you know, she was going in for a surgery and her phone's ringing and people are telling her like, hey, we know you're getting ready for surgery, but here's, there's an important issue we really just need you to deal with. And it was not an important issue. Wow. And what other job would it be acceptable for an employee or someone, a coworker to call you on your day off before surgery to be like, hey, I need something from you real quick. Uh, and I had that on vacations. Sometimes I would get calls at 10, sometimes 11 o'clock at night with, you know, someone's emergency. And I'm sorry, unless it's a suicide attempt, that th- there is no emergency you should call me about at 10 p.m. Like, like, period. Like, that's no. And if it is a suicide attempt, you should probably call someone else. I'll support you while you're doing this. But like, I'm not that, that's not my job. Like, I, I'm not equipped to do that. Like, that's a that's a psychologist, therapist, you know, crisis worker kind of job. So 
as a pastor, you end up kind of being the catch-all for so many people all the time, and you're way underpaid. Um, kind of to your point, Corlin, about being on like Wick and all this stuff. Like, I have a memory of members of our church, like just bashing Obamacare as like this abomination, this terrible thing. You know, all these poor people getting healthcare, how terrible it is. But I'm like, every staff member at this church wouldn't have healthcare without Obamacare. Like, this, you know. Yeah. So it's it's like this very like conservative churches are so against all of these social programs that probably half to maybe 60 to 70 percent of pastors depend on to live and maybe you all should be the ones that tithe and maybe not the pastors like just just saying's all like and i'm not saying compulsory tithing is ever good but it's just it's interesting that there's all this talk and rhetoric about like you have to give 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 but like it's typically people that are making way less than they should be tithing 10 percent, and people that are making way more not doing that because it's you know and so in churches it, it just becomes this burden of the burden to support the ministry ends up on a very f- small amount of people both financially and in just volunteers and that's just it's i don't feel like it's sustainable can we like take a second to also say the difference between like donating money and tithing because i yes. i think that it's a huge difference I, yeah, and I think that there's this whole piece of like the manipulation of this is what God needs you to do versus like, hey, if there's an organization that you want to support or if there's a creator that you want to support and you want to give money like and, and you have the ability to do that and you have the autonomy over your income and you're able to do that, like that's a whole different thing because I there was a piece in that thread that that got added into it that was like um, – things about union dues and nonprofits. And I just like, I, I, I think that there's, there's nuanced conversations to have, but I think that the, the bottom line to what you're saying, Justin, is the, the forced and the manipulation piece of it. That is the mm-hmm. problem. <laughs> yeah, for sure. People want to give to a church, give to a church. Like if you believe in that mission, like if you want to support those pastors, do that, like, let that be your Patreon. Like, and please do more than $4 a month. Um, <laughs> but uh, but when pastors and other people are like, God wants you to give 10%, that's where it becomes problematic for me yes. in a big way. One, because yeah, and- there are some people that can and if and they use the resources of a church enough that like, maybe you ought to give more than 10%. Um, and there, But there are other people that are like, please, God, don't give 10%. You need groceries. Like, because 10% to someone on 20K a year is a lot more money than 10% to someone making a lot more. Yeah, and yeah. just and just the way the, the way the math works out and being able to feed your family. And I think, that, I think that that's where, too, there's something about, you talk about, you know, modern evangelicalism appropriating, you know, these um, ancient Mideast practices, uh, and Jewish traditions and the reality of of life in the ancient world was religious affiliation and community was much more enmeshed with your existence as just a person, right? Like like there we we were not in the same type of society there wasn't like you know it was like you were involved in the church because 
you were involved in this community of people and everybody in your entire community and in, in your entire group of, 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 it was a much more enmeshed reality that you were giving to. And, and the way evangelical churches exist is they're not that they're not this like institution that is enmeshed with healthcare and education and social programs and et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a very minor standalone organization within our society as a whole. Um, and so the way in which, you know, I was taught tithing was like w the way I was taught was you tithe 10% pre-tax and that's your tithe. And like that, that is not your offering. That's not your gifts. That's not your giving. That is, that comes out first, right? You make 50,000 a year. Just, just to stop for a second. The tithe yeah. was always on the increase. Like that's what's in the scripture. So yeah. it's just interesting that somehow it became the gross, but like, no, it's, it's, you tithe the profit, not anyway, sorry. And Continue. it was a huge deal that like we were taught to tithe pre-tax. You don't tithe yeah. after taxes. You tithe your pre-tax. That's nowhere supported in the Bible <laughs> at all. Yeah. Like not even and close. Th that was the way I was taught how tithing worked. So it had mm -hmm. nothing to do with what you want to give. It had nothing to do with feeling compelled by the mission. It was a requirement on being a Christian. And to some extent, like that makes sense if you are in a deeply enmeshed, ingrained community where that money is actually serving the whole of the community. But that's not actually what happens in evangelical churches. Um, and so I think that we're like trying, you know, to your point earlier, Justin, like we're trying to push these two things together and the leaders of these organizations are using this rhetoric from a completely different context to promote something that it like 100% just is not. Mm -hmm. And when your paycheck is tied to it, like I get why pastors, you know, aren't accurate in their appropriation of the Bible for the, cause I, I get it. Like you got to keep the lights on. Like there's a part of me that like understands, but it creates this like perverse incentive to exploit people because you, you, the pastor have to eat like, and you have to justify your own existence every single week. And so I think even good natured people that are trying to do good in the world to kind of fall into this tithe rhetoric trap because it's right there. And it's now the tradition of the evangelical church to preach this. And so it, 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 it becomes a real issue. Um, even it, it just, it's a, it's a teaching that just ends up corrupting everybody. And it's just, I don't know, it's, just, it's bullshit. Here's my, it is most definitely is bullshit. bullshit. Here's yeah. my favorite thing. Pray about it. Like that's, that's my favorite thing because I've been asked to, to increase my donation before. And I'm like, ah, mm -hmm. let me think about that. I don't know. And it's like, pray about it. And see what happens. And I feel like that alone is like, oh, who's going to pray yeah. about it? Or if you're somebody, if, if you know, pre-evangelical Megan did do these things, but I have not prayed for a very long time. But if you are somebody that prays, like, do you think that when you're leading into to what is the right thing to do, the right answer about something, you're going to come up with like, 
probably cut my donation to whatever this XYZ organization is. Probably you're probably like the pray about it answer is like just kind of this this pat answer to say, um, hey, go think deeply about it and see, you know, if you have a personal conviction that will lead you to probably increase yeah. your donation. <laughs> Because I, I would imagine any pastor that heard you come back and say, I did pray about it, and I'm not going to increase my donation. Like, Can you pray about it some more? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I also, I, I again, back to the time and energy thing, I had that and when I was in college, I volunteered at a, as um, a youth leader in a youth group near my campus. And the following year, I knew that I had to cut something because I, I had a lot on my plate, and I was going to run cross-country. And so I was between running cross-country or doing youth ministry and evangelical Christian college, Megan did pray about that and did feel like the solution that came was to run cross country. And I remember talking to the youth pastor and him saying, did you pray about this? And I was like, yeah, I did. I really did. And I was that kind of person that like, like I floss my teeth so that when I go to the dentist, I can say, yes, I do floss. And so I used to pray so that when people asked me if I prayed, yes, I, I did pray about this. And it was so wild because it was like, it was that moment that you just said, Jester, where it's like, really, really did you, and, and you, and God told you to run cross country. And like now, mm-hmm. like I'm running a half marathon in every state. So dear Tony, the youth pastor, that that's mm-hmm. what probably God wanted for evangelical college, Megan. <laughs> probably. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first circumstances where I, felt like I prayed about something and I felt like God told me to do something. And then it became clear that that wasn't the universally accepted or approved decision. Yeah. And like how, how much of a mind fuck that is to be like, Oh, but God told me to do this thing. And then clearly it has led a lot of people down and not been what other people wanted me Mm -hmm. to choose. And then it becomes very difficult to be like, okay, but like, if all of these quote unquote godly people around me disagree, am I really hearing God? I mean, it's, it's, it's why the concept of hearing God is so ripe for manipulation. <laughs> because mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah Cause you can be primed can, to hear something as well. Yeah, You can begin like, transitioning that voice into a slightly different voice as you start mm-hmm. listening to these other voices around you. Can I just yeah. rabbit trail on this for one second? It's a, Go for it. Because I feel like I have more in recent times translated prayer to be like think intensely about something. And so I feel like with that, when, you know, in, in past times when I have a friend that's going through a hard time and I'm thinking like, I'll be praying for you. And instead, it's like, I'm going to be really thinking intentionally and intensely about you. And I'm probably going to follow up with you to see how you're doing. And I'm, and I might follow up with you more than one time. And I'm going to kind of sit with you in this, in this whole thing. And probably when I was deciding between cross country and the youth ministry, I was thinking intensely about it. And, and whether that was God or whether that was just my intuition that I was leaning heavily into on a regular basis in my morning prayer, like that, that's, that's kind of how I view prayer now, because I do think there was a benefit to having that mental space to have intentional thought about things, um, people Mm -hmm. in my life and important decisions in my life. But I also don't know if I believe that was God. That's my rabbit trail. Yeah. Well, it's just a lot of pressure to put on yourself to be like, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to think about a thing. 
and like God is going to tell me what I should do. You know, like that's that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. I mean, and God's relatively hidden to begin with. So like you, know, you might hear something and then the question is, was that God? You know, like, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and ask for discernment to figure out if the thing that I heard was God, you know, and then you hear that and you're like, so I'm going to pray to see if my discernment was godly enough to discern whether I heard the answer that I thought God gave to the first, you know, it's just this rabbit trail that just you spin yourself in circles and you wonder why as people deconstruct and particularly like, you know, in my, and you know, what I run into in my podcast when pastors leave ministry, they, they don't, I'm assuming I can say these words. They don't know what the fuck they want because they have no idea how to determine what is it that I want because they've been spinning themselves in circles trying to like figure out what God's will is for decades. Um, that's been my experience. I have yes. to handle that in therapy. And it's embarrassing as a 40-year-old man to be like, I don't know that I know how to know what I want. Yes. Um, but that's, that's where we're at. Megan, you had something to say, but what you just said, Justin, just like hit me in the face. Megan, you go first, though. Well, I was just going to say, on uh, to double down on, you know, the prayer, the discernment, you're also told to check it in the Bible, read your Bible intently, check it in the Bible, and also check it with, like, a mentor. And, and it's almost like we're in one of those, like... Um, what are those like shake bubble things that like the like snow globe snow globe and like yeah. everything floating around is just evangelical thought and so you're like just like sit in this fog of evangelical thought and then like check all of your thoughts with that within that fog and make sure that it's all but it's like everything that's going in that you're breathing in and breathing out is the same and so of course it's all going to check out of course it's going to be biblical and of course a mentor is going to confirm it because it's all in the same snow globe fog mm -hmm. Cortland, you had something, sorry. No, I just, I was going to say, like, that that phrase that you just said, Justin, I remember being, like, a pivotal realization for me is, like, what do you want? I remember being at the very end of, like, my ministry when everything had fucking fallen apart and it was, like, really, really fucking awful. And... I was being told by my mentors and by the people around me, like, you got to stay faithful and you got to keep hoping and blah, blah, blah. And, and I remember I went on a drive and I was driving, I had, I was driving down Santa Fe, like right at like Hamden in Santa Fe. We were talking about Denver before we started <laughs> yeah. recording. And I was at a stoplight right there past Hamden in Santa Fe in Denver, Colorado. And this is like, I had an out loud conversation with myself and at the time with God. And first I just said, I don't, I don't believe. That was the first time I said out loud to God that I don't believe in you. I was like, I don't believe in you. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in you and fuck you <laughs> both. But I remember saying, what do you want, Cortland? Like, what do you, like, I hadn't asked myself what I actually, like, wanted out of any yeah. of this. And I had done yeah. so many things that I felt betrayed myself in pursuit of doing what I felt God wanted. Yeah. And I had seen that, like, work out for the worst in so many situations. And, and, 
when I made the conclusion that like, oh, actually like asking myself and leaning into what I want is actually not a bad thing. Like maybe my intuition about what I feel is right and I desire and feels correct maybe is like, maybe I'm going to start trying to like listen to that versus trying to repress. Cause there was so much rhetoric in evangelical ministry for me and my experience that was like, basically like whatever was good for you or whatever, like would work out well for you. You should suppress, repress. It's that's probably the wrong answer because the right yeah. answer is selfless. The right answer is against whatever your desires are. Yeah. Like almost like you better not like anything too much or God's going to take it away from you. Like yes. it, it like almost this. became the litmus test. Like, do I mm-hmm. like this? Does this feel good? Oh, this is probably the devil. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like this is good for me. This, you know, or, or this takes time away from ministry. Like I, um, just going to, just going to rip this bandaid off. I did CrossFit for a number of years. Uh, I'm, I'm now repented of that lifestyle. Uh, <laughs> but um, like I was a coach and everything. Like that was just kind of like the uh, like rather than volunteering at the church, I would coach at CrossFit gyms, um, just because I needed something other than church. And that always created tension in almost every church I was in. And you know, like. It was that you know you're spending a lot of time there, or you talk about CrossFit too much. Like you're, you know, you, do you love that more than Jesus? Or, you know, like it's like I don't talk about CrossFit that much, really. Um, says every CrossFitter ever. Yeah, you uh, should meet a vegan. Come on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or a marathon like, runner. Yeah, that vegan CrossFit person. Vegan CrossFitters, <laughs> which I know a few. They're who? That's a that's yeah. a Venn diagram. God I forbid you. No. you meet a polyamorous vegan CrossFitter. You are <laughs> you're gonna have a long fucking conversation out of you. <laughs> like at, at hello, they've already mapped out the entire conversation. Uh, no. So like it was, but it was just like something to do other than you know. And the funny thing is, is like there were pastors that had hobbies, but for whatever reason, that hobby because like I don't know, interacted with like worldly people. I don't get it. They were like, I don't know, like they just you know, it was just it was like this questionable thing because you're spending time with people outside of this bubble, and you know, I don't I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> um. No, I I have a theory that I want to throw out there because I want to see what y'all think about it. Go for it. My theory is this. I feel like evangelicals keep you in this bubble for so long that the things that they say are bad and will go badly if you try end up going badly because you have no education about them, right? And so Mm -hmm. I like – I'll say drinking, for example. I was I was part of a, a group of people, peer group, that kind of thought like, you know, even when you're 21, you shouldn't drink. Or, or I actually had somebody in ministry that was on staff at our church say, it's okay to drink as long as you keep it really put away and you just do it in secret, which now looking back, I'm like, that's really an interesting non-biblical thing that they had going on. But okay. But anyway, and then you have no kind of education. I remember like when I was 22, 23 and first started drinking, I was making mistakes that a lot of people make when they're teenagers, like drinking on an empty stomach or mixing different liquors and, mm-hmm. and things like that, that I'm like, wait a second, like nobody told me this. And and I think the same goes to with sex. There's no sex education. People get out there, they have shitty experiences. And then in their minds, they think, 
well, this is what I was always told it would be like. I was always told it would be shitty. I was always told that getting drunk was just super shitty. And I was always told that Mm -hmm. having sex was going to be shitty. And now it is. And I feel like evangelicals almost have an incentive to, to, to not even protect, but like keep the information on how to do these things in a healthy way so that when people Mm -hmm. do go out and explore an experience, it becomes, it's a bad experience. And then they come back to Mm -hmm. the church saying like, oh yeah, that you were right about that. Or or I left, or I left ministry and it was miserable. Like, like that's, you know, like so many people leave ministry in that first year is awful because you like, I don't, I don't know what a TPS report is. I don't know what, you know, like, I don't know all the, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know how to. And, and so, yeah, so it's awful. And then, I mean, you, and then you, you figure it out or they go back into ministry, but they're unhappy there too. Cause they left for a reason usually. Yeah. And you know, or it just becomes this thing. Like I just got to get back. Like I, I've known way too many pastors that like, yeah, they got out of ministry or they, you know, left a position and then they had to slum it somewhere. And it just becomes this obsession with like getting back and back and get back in the game. You know, and it's like, it's just, it feels just unhealthy to me. But it's like, this is this is the only place I know how to thrive. Um, and yeah. I, that's very sad, I think. Well, and I think a part of it, too, is that we keep the world, like, so, like, like, separate from, like, like, the ministry. The ministry world is, like, a subculture. It is a very isolated subculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I remember I haven't talked very much on the podcast about my friendship with Ted Haggard. I've talked to Megan some about it, but oh, I was friends I was, with Ted. Okay. Here we go. Yeah, we're okay. here for it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Uh, so, so there was that documentary called "The Trials of Ted Haggard." Uh, who's the Who's the gal? Who's the Speaker of the House? Or she was for years. I don't know. If she Nancy still Pelosi. Is. Pelosi. So Pelosi's daughter, uh, I think her name is Alexandria. Alexandria Pelosi. I may be totally wrong. So like, I guess I'll do some fact checking while you're. We'll fact check. Uh, Made a documentary. She made a documentary called Friends of God, um, which was a documentary on the kind of evangelical church movement. She met Tad Haggard through that documentary. Then she made a documentary called that was on HBO called The Trials of Tad Haggard which was following Ted and his family after his kind of excommunication from Colorado Springs, uh, after he got caught, you know, seeing a male prostitute and smoking meth. After all of that, I met Ted. Is that Alexandra? Oh, Is that her name? Okay. Alexandra. Yep. You're yep. Alexandra Pelosi. Okay. So, so she made that documentary. I saw that documentary. We ended up reaching out to Ted, me and a couple of my ministry partners at the time. We became good friends. And in talking with him a lot about his experience, if you watch that documentary, The Trials of Ted Haggard, it was very interesting to see how the institution that he fucking built just cut him off. Like, was like... Nah, dude, you are going to bankrupt this empire that you built. And they made him and his family. So I, I've met his his son a few times, Marcus, um, who's who from what I know, a very good dude, and his daughter and a couple of his other kids. Um 
they made them all sign contracts saying they would never like start a church within like a hundred mile radius of New Life in Colorado Springs. Wait, just a hundred mm-hmm. miles? Yeah, something like that. I don't know, 150 miles, something yeah. like they were like, like, you cannot do ministry, you cannot do anything anywhere near here. Um, because we're gonna protect this 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 church that we built. Long story short, my my thing is not to be a TED apologist at all, because there's a lot of reasons I won't be. Um, he was not prepared at all to like live in the world as a person mm-hmm. who had just basically been a pastor for 20 plus years. Um, because we keep people in ministry so isolated from the rest of the world, that transition into the real world, that other culture, uh, because church and ministry and church planting especially is such a subculture it keeps people isolated in it um yeah we don't know how to do much else and i struggled a lot with like what do i do like like because it's such a unique skill set being a pastor especially if you're like a preaching pastor like there's not a lot of other places we go as a people and sit around and listen to someone speak, right? Like yeah. Ted talks, podcasts, right? Like, I don't know. That's why, so many past- That's why so many pastors become podcasters. Cause it's like, you're used to semi long form communication. Like that's what you're good at. That's what you like. And it, it is such a niche thing. Cause like, again, like stand up comedy, podcasting and being a pastor are really the only like, long form talking communication forums that are accessible to like most people. Like I'm talking about normal people. I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, like in our culture, if you're, if you're a really, really wealthy person or a celebrity or something, yeah, maybe you can get on a speaking circuit or something at some point, but you like, that's usually the thing you do after you've done a thing. That's not usually the thing you just start doing. Yeah. And so, and that's, and, and that's another thing I was good at it. Like I am good at public speaking. I enjoy it. It's fun. Like the adrenaline, the, it's just like crafting something to communicate in such a way, like crafting jokes that like land at the right moment to move people in a certain way. Like it's like, it's, it's an art and it's a science, it's performance art. And it's something that like, you don't get to do other places. Like I haven't, I haven't really had an opportunity, too many opportunities to do it outside of ministry things now that I've left. And, you know, in some ways I miss that, but that's also like, yeah, you're, it's, it's such a hard fall when you're like, I'm used to having an audience every single week. And now I, you know, I have trouble getting Sally and human resources to answer my emails. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like, and it's, and they're, they're all problems that normal people have had to deal with. Uh, But as a pastor, you know, and, you're not a celebrity anymore. Like, even if you're not paid well, most pastors, like, you walk in a room, and it's like, that's the pastor coming in the room. Like, and then suddenly, I mean, I remember anytime I moved as a pastor, like, I would show up to wherever I was moving to, whether it was a house or apartment or whatever, and there would already be, like, 30 people, like, ready to unpack my stuff. Like, which is kind of, in, like, like, now that I think about <laughs> it, like, that's, that's not the best introduction to a person. Like... Here's my bag. Here's my box of underwear. Like, you know, but it's just like, this is, you know, how it worked. And then when I moved to Columbus for the job I have now, um, it was like my mom was there, yeah. which I'm glad my mom was there. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, 
oh, no one in this city actually cares that I'm here. Which, again, is a normal feeling for normal people. But when it's like you're used to kind of being the celebrity everywhere you go, um, it's like, wow, that's, that's... No wonder pastors get addicted to it and never leave even long past their usefulness. Because yes. it becomes a bit of a drug. Yes. Okay, I have I have a thought about that, but I also want to open the door for Cortland to tell his joke about moving during the pandemic. <laughs> you want to give your thought first? Do you want to give my No, my I just think it's first? funny because it's like Justin just went through like why it was, you know, what what happened, you know, after he left ministry and tried to move and you had a situation where you're moving during the pandemic and and it was a different beast. Yeah, Megan heard me do an open mic and I did comedy the other week and i and i told the joke justin heard it too you don't, you don't uh, have to tell it like I, the whole joke thing i mean i get i moved during the pandemic and i my joke is that i like like having all very liberal friends they were all like being responsible uh liberals and staying at home with their priuses and i was like kind of like feeling sad that i didn't have some like conservative friends to show up in their ford f-250s and bring me a case of natty light and help me move so i ended up moving by myself with my the joke goes that i moved with my son my 11 year old but it was actually my brother my brother who was living in his van at the time uh and helped me move because he was pretty dependent on uh public restrooms and uh rec centers for bathing uh and so he helped me move. so he did it for he a also, shower he also edits this podcast nice. shout out to cody i love it i love it <laughs> uh, well but in all honesty i think what you were speaking to justin about that whole piece i think there's another piece that's wrapped up in in having your identity be so intertwined with your career. And I think I found that as a teacher too, because, um, I, like when I left teaching, it was like, so my, my job wasn't as legible and it wasn't as clear. And, and it was hard because I had wrapped so much of my identity up in like, Oh, I'm an elementary school teacher. I'm a bilingual teacher. Um, and it, it was always like something that I had conversations with about, you know, when I was in a room with people I didn't know. And I feel like when you're a pastor, it is a job, another job that you're, identity is wrapped up in. And so it's not just like figuring out how to career after that, but it's kind of figuring out who you are. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's like your identity and it's also your spirituality too. Like, you, yeah. like I, this is something I discovered as I left. I, I realized what I was, what I really believed versus what I was paid to believe for other people. Cause in a lot of, in a lot of ways, like you're, People will say, we want a pastor that preaches the word and convicts us and challenges us, but they don't. Like, they want someone to kind of perform the beliefs. And and I'm not even saying this disparagingly. I'm just saying this honestly. Like, this isn't, like, even a bad thing. But this is, like, they're paying someone to perform the beliefs in front of them and to confirm this is what we believe. And if you're going to convict somebody, make sure it's someone outside of this congregation, like, you know, the gays or whatever, like certainly no one here, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, find a group that is find a group that's not here and then the like diagram. preach against them. And then like, we'll all go, amen, you know, and like, we'll kind of perform the beliefs in front of you. And that's and that's and even even in congregations that are more progressive, like that's kind of what you end up doing, too. Like even like not even necessarily in a hateful way, but it's just like this person is here 
to like be a reassuring presence for us of, you know, God or whatever. And again, not bad, but when all of a sudden it's like, I don't know that I believe this, but my paycheck is tied to it. So I kind of just have to keep performing here. And it, you know, you end up kind of creating this God mask and then like, you don't know who you are. And it wasn't really until I was out that I was like, oh shit. Like I, I don't know that I actually believe any of this. Um, and, and that's, that's a real, that's a real mind fuck. Honestly, when you realize that like, I've just been doing this because I was paid to do it or I got some kind of social collateral out of it. Um, and I don't know that this is something that's really intrinsic to what I think about the world. I mean, and I'll always be Christian-ish. I mean, that's just the culture I was raised in. It's just, that's kind of just where I've gotten a lot of just my default values in the world. But um, I just never felt the freedom to explore beyond that. And I didn't want to until all of a sudden I realized, holy cow, like I don't, this doesn't hold water for me anymore. This is an adult, this is a belief that I've outgrown and I outgrew it for years. And I was just kind of performing it for people because that's what they wanted. Um, And so... I mean, yeah, I'm trying not to even say that in a disparaging way, because I think sometimes you need someone to be there to reassure you of what you believe. And I think sometimes that's that's not even a bad thing. But when you don't know what you think and what you believe and your paycheck's tied to it, it just becomes impossible to be authentic in that position. Yeah, which which I think that there is something to it's so interesting when I hear conservatives talk Especially like like, I don't know, Meg, Megan. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. <laughs> we've we've talked before about people in in that you've interacted with, and people that I've interacted with who talk about like queerness as being like some type of cult that we joined. Oh yes, I have been that. accused of. Yeah, I've <laughs> been accused of being in a cult. Being in sure. the rainbow cult. Um. No, the reality is it's so funny when Christians do that because I'm like, oh, wait, like you're an entire like group of people whose identity also reflects in the type of like places that you go and media you consume and uh, like, oh, like, hello, pot, like I'm kettle, like (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, you, you evangelicalism, like, like, like. They have their own movies. They're they have their own fucking radio stations. Like we don't have a queer radio station yet. Like there's not a queer radio station in every state in the fucking union. Like there is a Christian radio station. Yeah. Um, and maybe someday. I, 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 sorry, like Christian radio stations. This is what I feel like. I feel like they, whatever the cool station is in a particular city, like, like, and there's a Christian radio station in the next city. They'll pick that frequency. So like you're just driving, listening to the radio, and it's like this is the coolest music ever. And then all of a sudden, it's like positive, encouraging K love, and you're like, "What <laughs> happened? What happened?" Yeah, I, I was trying to pull up some, dredge up some Ocean's lyrics to just throw out there as yeah. an example, and I just I could not I could not access, and I'm kind of proud of myself, but and, yeah, and I'm probably, listening to like ACDC, uh, and then it just transitions into whatever. Yeah, you know, and Stephen yeah, Curtis Chapman. Yeah. I'm diving in. I'm going deep. Oh, stop. No, that is an earworm be. that I will not remove. <laughs> but like there you is something ashamed to of like, yourself. <laughs> we we have we have like 
I like being in queer spaces. I like being in queer bars. I like being in, in spaces where aspects of my identity are shared by the people around me. And so there is something to that. Like I get why Christians like being in Christian spaces. Like there's something comfortable about that. Um, it's just so funny to me when they try to turn that around and like, like it's like they almost know that like they're doing something kind of nefarious by having their like holy grounds coffee shop and you're like oh like you're 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 dishing up christian coffee and you're mad because like i'm going to the queer bar like <laughs> like you know we're the same right <laughs> like you want to be around weird christian people and i want to be around gay people okay so let me have my vintage store and you can have your weird hebrews coffee shop <laughs> yeah yeah word um, I think we're like at a point where we are close to wrapping and I want to give Justin a chance to plug all of his shit and, and also yeah. add any last words about any of this that we've talked about that you have final thoughts and, and yeah. things, but yeah, tell listeners where they can find you on all the socials mm -hmm. and podcasts and everywhere. Yeah. I'm some variation of Justin Gentry on the socials. I think Justin D Gentry on Twitter and, you know, I'm around Instagram as well. Um, the podcast I mentioned, I think most on this show is Rev Covery, and you can find that at Rev Covery on Twitter. Um, I host that with, uh, Sarah Heath. And again, it's really just more for helping ministers telling their stories about leaving and that just that unique experience of being a pastor and having left and rather than just the experience of just generally people leaving and also people figuring out how to stay people that were volunteers even, because I think volunteers sometimes have just the exact same pressures that ministers did, um, and but just not paid. And so and we've done, you know, very practical things like how to build a resume, like because discipleship coordinator doesn't really translate very well. That screams cult leader to me. So unless you're doing like some weird tech startup stuff, like discipleship coordinator is not going to be helpful. But how do you transfer those skills? Because I will say this to anyone listening to this who's a pastor who's like, hey, I think maybe I want to leave. I'm not sure I can hack it out of church world. Um, you have the skills, but you, you just maybe just don't know how to package them yet. Like soft skills, like how to lead meetings, how to intuit what people are trying to communicate. Um, that's what you do naturally. And that's what companies are looking for. You can learn Excel. That's not, it's actually not that hard. You can learn Smartsheet or Doodad or whatever app is out there that your company uses. They'll, they'll train you in that. They can't train you how to sit and like listen to people and figure out like how to run a meeting. Like, and you already know how to do that. So I think, and there's all kinds of other skills that you have and conflict management and all this other stuff that you, you have a lot more than you think you do and you have a lot more to offer. And so I would just, if you are that person who's like, I think I want to leave, don't sell yourself short because you definitely have the skills to do it. It's just it's the, the transition is going to be hard. And that's why Rev Covery exists. So plug for that show. Uh, another show I do is Go Home Bible, You're Drunk. It's, it's, it's just for the lulls, folks. It's like, don't so take good. it seriously. It's like, so good. we just have a good time. And it's with uh, Tori Williams Douglas. And we just have a good time, you know, reading the Bible and drinking about it. We have guests sometimes. Sometimes it's just us. And the Bible, it drives you to drink, honestly. And so I feel like the most appropriate response sometimes to the weirdness that is the Bible is just to have a fun drinking game about it. So 
if you just want to laugh and just enjoy the weirdness that is like why do we taught this to children i don't know like yeah why we taught that zipporah chasing away god with her son's foreskin was something that i needed in my childhood i don't know but we're gonna talk about it so that's uh, was there a flannel graph graph for that one I don't I don't know that there was um, there's actually some really funny children's books that have been made like kind of children's books for adults like illustrating these very graphic odd stories in yeah. the Bible oh, that yeah. I just find to be fascinating I think um, yeah Dan Kemble who's like still like OG he's still like like in the Christian world wrote the foreword to one of the children's books children's Bibles for adults or whatever yeah um, which yeah they're they're hilarious yeah, so we just try to do that in podcast form, and we have a great time. So, uh, yeah, those are the two things you can check me out at. And I think, um, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. All right. Yeah, we're we're so glad to have you, and we hope that, like your co-host Tori Williams Douglas, your return guest, she's been one of our few return guests. We hope that you, Justin, will become a return guest for oh, the Thereafter Pod. Wait, and hold on. I have maybe to ask. Maybe someday we'll get Rev Sarah Heath, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You have to um, ask what? I, we always, we try, we forget sometimes. Oh, yeah. But we try to I ask our guests, like, if you were going to come back. You always remember. Yeah. If you were going to come back and just talk about something that you're not known for in any of your public spaces, and you can't say CrossFit either. <laughs> I was going to say, it's 100% going to be CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would it be? What would you, what topic could you, would okay, you want to have an so episode about? So what's the one thing you would talk about, and it can't be the one thing you would talk about, okay. what would it be? <laughs> yeah, um, you could say CrossFit. I'll say two things. I will say, like, just generally embodied living, I think, is something. But I talk about that in other podcasts. So we'll just do that one as, like, a freebie. I actually think I would really like to talk about the way um, technology is impacting the way we live and how good or bad that is. Like, Ooh. do we have the ability? Should we be hopeful or should we be terrified? Um, Interesting. And I would really like to dive more into that and talk about that so that'd do you be have bandwidth I'm... to do a third podcast yeah like, i'm like let's pull matt the snarky jen in on this one like well, well blake, to get blake, blake chastain, chastain. And, yeah exactly oh, that's blake. exactly what i was gonna say we've both I've talked been trying about to it get blake to do a tech podcast because i was like blake i will sub i subscribe already to yeah. his sub stack i would subscribe i would be a patron of a tech podcast if blake did it he and I have both talked to, together, like jokingly, about starting a tech podcast. But we're also like, I just I don't know that we can do it. <laughs> it's just really so many hours. Um, right, but if I had up. the hours, if I had the hours, I that's probably what I would want to do. Yeah, for sure. Hit me up when you guys launch it because I want to be on the launch team. I, right, I'm cool. here for it. It'd be great. Cortland, where can people find us on the socials? Uh, I am at Cortland Coffee all over the world. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Space Hey, uh, what else? TikTok, uh, Hinge. OK Cupid, Hinge. No, I'm not on Hinge. Uh, <laughs> eHarmony, Field. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not Christ on eHarmony, Christian Mingle, not on Christian Mingle, Atheist at this, Mingle at this point. So it's it's become a joke. Um, sorry, I'm going to interject. It's become a joke on Go Home Bobby or Drunk. Because sometimes, well, because we'll talk, we have ad breaks. And sometimes I'll just share the ads that I'm getting. Um, 
And I've been getting a lot of ads lately for dating apps, but they're like the wrong kind of dating app. Like I got one called like Our Time, which was for dating for people over 50. Oh. Like, so it was all old people. Um, I got one that was exclusively for black people and people of color. I was like, and I, I, I actually felt good about that one because I felt yeah. like the algorithm, I had transcended race in some way. Like it doesn't know that I'm a white man. And then yeah. maybe that's a good thing. Um, and I got a bunch of other dating apps. So, um, J date, you can get on J date. I, I got all kinds of ads for dating apps. I don't know why. I think maybe just like that man's watching Hulu late at night. He certainly <laughs> is single. Like, <laughs> let's send the him the mysteries this. of the algorithm. Yeah. Uh, who knows? The algorithm abides. Say? Yeah. Okay. So, Sorry, continue. Yeah, so I'm Cortland Coffee. We are Thereafter Podcast uh, on Instagram, Thereafter Pod on Twitter, patreon.com slash thereafterpod. Um, that's all of our stuff. Megan, where can people find you? I'm at The Pursuing Life on Twitter and Instagram and the places. And I do just interject. I know I've done a lot of rabbit trails this episode, but last thing, uh, we just had our Deconstruction Book Club on Sunday, and I think that this next month I'm going to, I'm going to pause and let Matt, the snarky gent, um, do his sci-fi ex-evangelical deconstruction book for, for a moment. And so check that out on Twitter. He's been tweeting about that. And, um, we want to, we want to fold that into kind of alternate a little bit. So, um, look for that. I think that's cool. it. And Join our Patreon. we're going to start doing we're going to start doing more stuff on the discord. If you want to be a part of the discord, uh, join the Patreon, um, patreon.com slash thereafter pod. That'll get you access to the discord. That's where we're going to start doing more community nights, meetups, uh, more of the extra stuff that happens outside of the week to week here at the pod. Um, we'll be through that. So if you want to be involved in that, join the Patreon and, and you can get linked in that way. And if you want to join Justin's go home Bible, Patreon, I'm over there on their discord, which is a, yeah. Which is a fun time as well. You know, so, I feel uh, left out. I'm not in that Patreon. That. I'll have to join. Megan, you gotta join. <laughs> Indeed. You gotta You'll join. have to join. I'm in too many Discord servers. <laughs> uh, and I'm not active in very many of them, but I uh, I do enjoy having them all uh, on my on my feed. Alright, well this has been fun. Yeah, good time. Right. Thanks guys. Until next time, thanks Justin. Alright. <laughs>